Welcome to Saigon 007. I've been working on a little something that I think will be quite handy for your next mission. It's an attaché de diabolique. It contains spoilers for the movie Tomorrow Never Dies. Now, off you go and save the world. This is Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then compete to improve them. I'm your host, Craig, and this week's movie is 1997's Brosnan Bond Saigon Ding Dong Tomorrow Never Dies. So, Peril Pals, arch your eyebrow, type up another delicious headline, and let's get diabolical. Welcome to this week's episode. As host for this week, I'm the CEO of the panel of Peril Media Group, who will compete against me at the close of the show in a bid to become the world's go-to news source, as we each try to come up with the best alternative plan for the movie villain of the week, before we vote to name this week's most diabolical. As ever, I'm joined by three editors-in-chief. Please introduce yourselves and tell me. Tomorrow Never Dies is chock full of cameos that will make you leap from your seat and point at the telly like Leonard O. DiCaprio. But what was your biggest, oh shit, look who it is, moment? Let's start with Ben. Hi, Ben here. I've kind of got two here because there was one where I was like, oh shit, and there's one that's like, ah, I love that guy. Do your favourite now and I'll come back to you. I was delighted to see Vincent Schiavelli. Yeah. I love him in everything. Yeah, he's the guy from Ghost, right? Yeah, the subway guy. Yes, good choice. And Buffy, he's the elderly gypsy man, Jenny Callender's uncle or whatever in Buffy. Right, yeah. Two? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mean old Uncle Callender, I think his character was called. Hmm. Well, Gaz, as you're dishing out the knowledge of where actors have been in other things, what about you? I'm Gaz, and... My favourite cameo is Michael Serra playing Marlon Brando in Twin Peaks The Return. That's a very good one, but I specifically <laughs> wanted cameos from Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, bloody hell. Oh, I didn't look that up. Yeah, I didn't do that. I'll have to go with Michael Serra in Twin Peaks. <laughs> well, at least Ben understood the assignment. <laughs> I didn't understand it either, so... Uh, yeah. Michael Serra as... As Q. <laughs> I'm looking at cameos from Tomorrow Never Dies. There's loads, which is presumably why Craig picked it. Yeah. Uh, so you can't remember anyone else that was in it, in like a small part? No. I remember the main characters. That bodes well for the uh, did you like this film section. We'll have to go with Michael Sarah in Twin Peaks The Return. <laughs> like Marlon Presto. It's the wild one that he's referencing with that outfit. <laughs> the wild one, is it? Yeah, same as Crichton in Red Dwarf. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very funny scene. Cinemaster. Did you spot anybody in Tomorrow Never Dies that you were surprised by? Yeah, I did. And uh, that person was Hugh Bonneville as a little mm. British uh, Navy person saying, yeah. holy shit, the Chinese are going to get us. Uh, did you spot him, did you? Yeah, I saw him. But then I was like, I recognized him, but I couldn't remember what his name was. <laughs> and I just Googled it now and he said he's in it. <laughs> I had a few where I saw their names at the end. I was like, all oh, right, I didn't see any of those people. Yeah. I've remembered one that I saw. You've remembered one that you saw? Yeah, when Cinemaster said Hugh Bonneville, I was like, oh yeah, I did go, huh, that's Julian Fellows, when he had his uh, yeah. four lines. Mm. Funnily enough, the two, uh, what the fuck's it called, Downton Abbey 
poshos. Alumni. Mm-hmm. All right, and Ben, you had another one? Yeah, mine was Jeffrey Palmer. Mm. I was yeah. very surprised to see him as the general. That was the one I went, oh, shit. He's in a few, though, isn't he? Yeah. I think he might be in two. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, there were a few in there. The first one that I spotted was Jerry Butler, who was on the Devonshire as just a seaman. He had like one line. I think my favorite one was the amazing Malini himself, a magician Ricky Jay, who played Gupta, the uh, cyber terrorist. I don't think that's a cameo. That's like a main role, isn't it? That's a big role. That's meaty. Yeah, it was uh, still a surprise to see him in a Bond film, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I did say fucking hell when, uh, when he popped up. I wasn't surprised at all. This might be an early spoiler. He might feature in my plan. That's all I'm saying. And mine. And mine. <laughs> <laughs> it was chock full of funny little cameos like that, which is why I thought it would be a good opening question. Uh, more fool me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as this is both our fourth Bond film and our fourth incarnation of 007, I thought it would be appropriate to introduce a new segment, which I'm calling Two Zeros and One Lucky Seven. I'll share three facts relating to Tomorrow Never Dies, two of which will be true and one false. All you need to do is spot the false one. Number one. In his 2008 Vanity Fair article, The Tau of Bond Film Naming, Screenwriter Bruce Feierstein revealed that his original title was Tomorrow Never Lies, but due to a typo in a fax to MGM, which had been dictated to an assistant, they got dies instead of lies. Number two. In his 2008 Vanity Fair article, The Tower of Bond Film Naming, screenwriter Bruce Feierstein revealed that the title initially eluded him, but driving to lunch one day, he heard the Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows on the radio and thought, Hmm. <laughs> Number three. In his 2008 Vanity Fair article, The Tower of Bond Film Naming, screenwriter Bruce Feierstein revealed that the original title of the film was Surrender and remained the working title so far into production that composer David Arnold had already recorded its title track with KD Lang. The track still appears over the end credits of the film. So, one of those ain't true. What are you thinking? Let's ask Cinemaster first. I'm going to say uh, number two, because I don't think, unless he was listening to maybe Desert Island Discs or Tracks of My Years on the uh, now defunct Ken Bruce radio show. This was 1996, probably, by the way, or 95. Yeah, that's it. So, Did you just say Desert Island Dicks? <laughs> I did. Have you never heard of it before? No. I need to give that a listen. Yeah, in both your ears at the same time. (laughs) 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 I don't think that Tomorrow Never Knows would be on the radio very frequently. And I think that the other two sound a bit more feasible, even though they're probably a bit more convoluted. All right. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I was going the same way too. I think the third one sounds very plausible. The first one also sounds plausible. The second one also sounds plausible, but for some reason I don't buy it. So, <laughs> Gaz, are you going to give us a full house of twos, or are you going to pick something else? Come on, Gaz, join us. Be one of us, Gaz. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure it's two. The Tomorrow Never Lies thing I have read before, so I'm pretty sure that's true. And mm. like Ben just said, number three does sound very plausible, so I'm going to say number two. And in fact, 
you're right about number one. Pulp recorded a song, Tomorrow Never Lies. They were initially approached to do the song for the film. Huh. Ended up being just a B-side for Pulp. But oh. in fact, The Red Herring was number three. Oh. Katie Lang did a song, Surrender, and it is over the main titles, but it was never the title of the film. Mm. And Bruce Feierstein claims he heard Tomorrow Never Knows on the radio. Maybe he was listening to a compact disc. Time now to delve into this week's film, The Citizen Kane of Bond Movies. Dedicated to the memory of founding franchise producer Cubby Broccoli, and the first film to be produced after his death, Tomorrow Never Lies was also to be the first Bond film whose title was not wholly or partly derived from the work of creator Ian Fleming. Thanks to a typo on a fact at MGM, the lies became dies and the title stuck. Tomorrow Never Dies was the second outing for Pierce Brosnan's popular revival of 007. The plot is launched when media baron Elliot Carver hires cyber terrorist Henry Gupta to hack the GPS of HMS Devonshire and steer it into Chinese waters, provoking a conflict that Carver can use both to bag some exclusive headlines and, more importantly, to secure exclusive broadcasting rights in China for the next century. Bond forms a tentative alliance with his Chinese state security counterpart, Wei Lin, played with ass-kicking assurance by Hong Kong action legend Michelle Yeoh. Reception to the film on release was mixed, with some feeling its rushed script was somewhat by-the-numbers Bond, and others that Jonathan Price's campy, howling-mad Rupert Murdoch analogue was lacking credibility and threat as a villain. However, in recent years, the film has been somewhat reappraised for what we now recognise as its all-too-plausible depictions of cyber-terrorism, biased and corrupt news organisations, and the absurd post-imperial delusion of Britain as a naval or political superpower. But, (laughs) what did the panel of peril make of it? Let's start with Ben. I found it a bit blah. It's never going to be top of anyone's favourite Bond list, is it? And you say Piers Brosnan's popular i <laughs> posit that just because you say it doesn't make it true i think he suffers from not making bond his own it was popular at the time golden i was very popular he's mm. trying to be roger moore basically but he doesn't have the pizzazz to deliver the one-liners in the same way but he's trying to emulate him and i think it's a bit sad that he doesn't try and make the character his own i think all the other bonds have or even lazenby wasn't just doing a carbon copy of sean connery so that was a, a bit of a shame but Michelle Yeoh, on the other hand, is the film's saving grace. Without her and and the action scenes that she features in, this film would have been the Bond equivalent of one of those crackling log fire videos on Netflix, i.e. entirely uneventful. Get the odd pop now and then. Infrequent popping is not enough to keep me engaged, I'm afraid. Fair enough. So overall, I give it an, unless you're a Michelle Yeoh fan, just watch any Roger Moore Bond instead out of five <laughs> okay cinemaster do you agree with uh, ben's appraisal there no i don't it's my favorite bond film ever and it always will well, be yeah i'm off no i'm only joking it's not <laughs> 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 no I, it's definitely not my favorite but i think it should be remembered more for the bond film it could have been because there's loads of different aspects to it that make it stand out. Not just the plot is a bit of a, a different plot compared to normal 
Bond films of just like a, a baddie who wants to do something. This is like a through the media, which is like a different optic we haven't seen play out through Bond before. By using the power of the media, it's more of a social commentary than just going, it's a baddie, He's, he needs to be taken out, he's doing something. It's got the classic Bond tropes of like they've sunk a ship and taken a missile out there and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's not just the plot that's a bit different to normal, but there's like the, the Bond vehicle, the BMW 7 Series. Uh, eh. You know, it's like, why? Eh. But as well, at the same time, it's got the great gadget tied in, you know, the remote control on the phone and all that kind of stuff. And I think as it's our first Pierce Brosnan Bond we've done, I don't dislike him as as Bond, but I think he's like a transition Bond. Yeah. He's sort of, in hindsight for me, I'm looking back at it now and going, there's a reason why he, he's not sure, because he's supposed to be becoming a bit modern, but the script is still written in a very sort of 1970s smack on the bum it's man talk business and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, perhaps that's it. But he cuts a good Bond. You know, if it was an ID parade, he'd pick him out as James Bond because he's yeah. a very James Bond looking character. But I don't think this film really gave him the chops to stretch his legs. But fortunately, he's supported by Michelle Yeoh, who eventually gets the second half of the film, really, doesn't she? But no, I, I did enjoy it. And I think it's more of a, it's a shame. It's a great premise for the whole thing. Yeah. But I think they could have done a lot more with it. And I, like I said, I feel a bit sorry for Pierce Brosnan. He didn't really get the chance to to show his guts in this film like he did in Goldeneye. Mm, okay. Uh, Gaz, what do you think? You you with them? Yeah, a bit from both of the other members of the panel. In hindsight, I think it actually might be my favourite of Brosnan's four films. Mm. I think uh, the premise of the villain and his plot is, like Cinemaster said, very unique to Bond films and only grows in relevance as time goes on with his sort of Rupert Murdoch slash Steve Jobs analogue on screen. But the thing that lets it down is Jonathan Price's performance is yeah. absolutely atrocious, shocking. And yeah. what's he called? Roger Spottiswood, the director. He's to blame for not saying, you're going to play it like that, are you? Yeah. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Try it with a bit of menace, <laughs> and then the character might work. <laughs> oh, delicious. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Awful, awful. The Kenneth Williams of the media world. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the plot is really interesting, trying to manufacture a conflict between two nations for, for your own gain as kind of a third party. Very, very interesting. And Brosnan's good, but like, Cinemaster was saying again, thinking about it, the four Bonds that we've covered being Connery, Moore, Craig, and now Brosnan, he is my least favourite of the four. Mm. And I think he comes across as trying too hard to be the cold killer at times and not nailing the humour of it at the same time. I think if he'd have just tried to make it more his own rather than trying to take too much from Connery and more simultaneously, mm. it would have worked better. I think he just, he has to go with the script and I think he goes yeah. with what he's given essentially. And I think that's the problem with how far he can go with the character because he has to say these lines and do it in that way. So I think he's a bit limited to, like you say, the director's probably saying, look, read it like Roger Moore. He didn't direct Jonathan Price, so he wasn't directing Brosnan. <laughs> there's no way. What you're saying is a real contradiction though, because there's not how Moore played it at all. Moore's, Bond was the warmest of them all and the, mm. the suavest. Yeah. It's the delivery of the one-liners is what I was saying. 
Piers Brosnan tries to copy that, but he doesn't nail it. I don't think he does try to copy it. I think what we're saying is the script he's given is very campy in 70s. Craig loves Piers Brosnan, wants to kiss him on the lips. There's lines in it, stupid shit, like the cunning linguist thing. But his actual manner, his portrayal is quite the opposite. He plays it icy cold. That's the problem. He cuts a good bond. I do. That's what I say. I just don't think he gets the material. I'm not necessarily saying he's good. What I'm saying is he doesn't play it like Roger Moore. He plays it cold. Maybe I was a bit hasty with saying Roger Moore. You know, I I don't think the lines, either he didn't like him or they said, look, just read the line and that's it and they'll just do it. They don't fit his take on the character at all, which is why it struggles. That's probably right. Yeah, I think that's more, more accurate. Yeah, for sure. I'd agree with... A couple of things Gaz said, one being that, in hindsight, is my favourite of the Brosnan era. I wouldn't have said that at the time. It would have been probably my least favourite at the time. But now, Mm. with hindsight, I think it's the best. And also that out of the Bonds we've covered, he would be my least favourite of those Bonds. Nonetheless, I do think he is good. He suffers really from the series' identity crisis that it had at this time, which is, as you said, that it was trying to modernise. In this, there's a bit where Bond knocks out a baddie pilot and chastises him for smoking. And then by the time you get to die another day, he's got Havana and fat fucking <laughs> stogies smoking like a chimney. They just didn't know what they wanted Bond to be. And this has got some of the most crass dialogue in it of any Bond. Yeah. And yet he's in the prior film described by the new M, who was a woman, as a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. But you get to him in this and... They're looking forward and backward at the same time, and that's one of the things that doesn't work about it. I think they do a brilliant job of evoking the style of the Hong Kong action that they were to go for. I think that's probably helped. I believe that Michelle Yeoh had her own stunt team kind of haunting (laughs) the set, although they wouldn't let her do her own stunts. Uh, She believes she wanted to. On the whole, I just think this is so fun Mm. and enjoyable. And as for the car, obviously BMW Mm. paid to be in it. That's that's just the way it is. But the actual... (laughs) gimmick of the gadget yeah. the remote control car when it first came out I remember Barry Norman or someone maybe Jonathan Ross saying it was a bit shit and I watched it this week I it's thought Actually, this is really fun it's just a really cool idea yeah I like. I liked it it was ahead of its time and it's aged really yeah. well is, is how I feel about it we'll come back to Jonathan Price later I don't think he's that bad I think in terms of menace the idea was that it would come from damper him being the yeah. the muscle He's henchman and that. The camp blonde fella. Very intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he looks like a Euro trash fanboy and he should have been called Scooter. <laughs> let's talk about our favourite moments and let's start the Cinemaster. Let me just get the thing out of the hell. Which one have I chosen? I've written quite a lot of notes for this. Yeah, I did. Have you never learned? What, to not start with Cinemaster? Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. rotate it. And what I think has happened is, because you've made me not pick him every other time, I've gone back to him in the order. I don't feel egregious <laughs> about it or anything like that. You know, it's fine. Choose somebody else. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Let's start. With Ben. I'm just having notes. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite part was the chase through the streets in, uh, in Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. Really, really good. That whole sequence where they're handcuffed together, some of the some of the stunts in that are brilliant. When she sits in his lap <laughs> as well. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, yeah. 
I think I missed that part because I was I had fainted by that point. <laughs> She's so fucking good, though. Like, really, they should have given her her own series. Yeah, oh yeah, uh, yeah. She'd have been a better Bond in the present. But that bike, bike chase, yeah, great stunts in that. That final slide under the rotor blades is just wonderful. <laughs> and then at the end of that chase scene, there's the weird shower scene in the market. Did that make you feel funny? Made me feel funny. <laughs> I was like, why are they doing this? What do you mean? It's a Bond film. You have to have a wet t-shirt in every Bond film. It's on the tick list. I was just like, Jesus. <laughs> Cubby Broccoli would have been turning in his grave if there wasn't a shower scene. I think I might mention this in another episode, but it always bears mentioning. I always remember the Empire review of The World Is Not Enough. That was the Denise Richards one, right? Yeah. Where they marked it down a full star because in the sequence where the submarine's flooding and Denise Richards gets her vest wet, you don't see anything. <laughs> That's cool. literally what they wrote. You don't see anything. Like the opposite of Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen nothing, of course. I just wrote one of my notes and it makes no sense, so I'm going to read it to you now. Price is a camp remote car. <laughs> like he's gently working a lady's private parts. I have no idea what I've written there. But I know what it means from how it makes me feel. All right, guys, favorite moment? Well, me and the Cinemaster had a very brief chat yesterday about a sequence that we were both cackling about, which is the opening sequence which takes place in a terrorist arms bazaar. <laughs> 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 terrorist car boot sale the antiques roadshow of terror <laughs> yeah they're like bartering for the best price and they've got crab halash for sale and mountain dew and crab juice and rugs <laughs> yeah very oh. very funny i think it's one of also one of the more thrilling opening missions it feels genuinely thrilling it's absolutely batshit crazy. <laughs> I think it's really good, but yeah, it's just that initial premise of it's a terrorist arm bazaar. Is that a thing? It's like a load of LPs to one side, pound for an LP. Bootleg live albums. Then there's like nuclear torpedoes next to it. Then next to it, somebody else has got a stall with a load of jam on it. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. Wonderful. All right, are you ready, Cinemaster? I am. I found my favourite part, and it is a bit which you shouldn't laugh at, but I did. It's when um, Elliot Carver has got like a like a tablet or something in his hand, and somebody s- tells him a headline, and he just, he just types on it. He's clearly just mashing the keypad like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wild. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, the headline will be this, this, and this, this. There you go. so. <laughs> 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 Well, I've got a few stunts that I thought people would mention that haven't come up, so just want to call them out. The main one being the uh, the rappel down the building on the banner. That's fucking incredible. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. Down the CMNG building. Not sure how they did it. A la Die Hard, that is, isn't it, as well? Because they get to the end and then they have to kick their way into the building. They've got swinging back and forth. Yeah, but more mm. believable because of the terminal velocity situation with Die Hard. should have rendered him in twain. <laughs> Another amazing stunt is the swim up the vent without the scuba gear mm. when they realize they can't fit through the vent with the tanks and they have to ditch them underwater and then they, they swim up that's just really cool the halo jump fucking incredible yeah that's a bit batshit isn't it years ahead of tom cruise doing shit like that a little bit bland in the presentation of it but a great idea they probably should have made more of how exciting an idea it was but not bad and then finally 
just a, a real throwaway moment in the film that really was a complex stunt that should have been given a lot more screen time, which is just Michelle Yeoh walking down the wall on that wire. Brilliant. As he struggles fighting his way down the stairs. Oh, well, she waves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Show it off. It was like a vertical <laughs> Genesis walk. Hot sun beating down. <laughs> All right, let's uh, move on to favourite lines, and let's start this time with Gaz. Not really written many down. There's there's the obvious one. 75 fucking episodes in now. 75 episodes in. Write down some fucking lines. <laughs> I've got one. Don't worry. I've actually got a couple, but the one I'm going to go with is just after Carver does his racist mocking kung fu routine to Wei Ling. He tells her that Bond is at the bottom of the ocean and therefore is his new anchor man. Like, oh, that's quite good. <laughs> that's very nice. Well, Cinemaster, if you're ready, let's hear your favourite line next. Well, mine is an exchange between Admiral Jeffrey Palmer and uh, Judy Dench's mm. M. And the Admiral says, you don't have the balls for this job. To which M retorts, perhaps... But the advantage is I don't have to think with them all the time. Nice. Ooh. Oh, no, she didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sassy. Very sassy. Then after that line played, it played, We are family. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Moving into a new feminist era for Bond, one in which I believe it um, suggests that Bond should pump Carver's wife for information. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Becky was watching with me at that point and she was just like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben, favourite line? Mine is an exchange between Carver mm. and Jean-Paul Gaultier. Scooter. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you use the right kind of ammunition. <laughs> yes, yeah. Delicious. Delicious. Yeah. What? <laughs> I heard tell of him saying that before I saw the film in like the review in the newspaper and I thought it was shit in print and it's shit in practice too. <laughs> I also really like it when the car tells Bond, remember, unsafe driving will void warranty. <laughs> I also have a, a line that I think is maybe the shittest line in anything ever, which is Bond, upon seeing that Carver has a building with a very large likeness of himself on it, says, if I didn't know better, I'd say he'd developed an edifice complex. An edifice complex. At first, I was like, Oedipus complex, what? And then I was like, I rewound it, I was like, Oedipus complex. And I rewound it again, I was like, oh, edifice edifice complex? What the fuck are you talking about? Shut up. Uh, doesn't work as a panel, <laughs> does it? It's terrible. <laughs> terrible. says what? I got another one that I'd like to make mention of. <laughs> yeah, go on. M's final line of the film. I was just like, that is fucked. Everything's been resolved. M is walking out of the office triumphant, and she says to Money Penny, let's brief the press and tell them that Carver committed suicide with a cheeky little yeah. grin. And I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's kind of as well. It's like lifting the curtain at the end and going, actually, this is how the governments and media actually work together. They just release a press release <laughs> yeah. and the media tell them. It's a joke about portly bad man Robert Maxwell and how he died. <laughs> yeah, 
No, that's what I mean. It's it's just like holy shit. That is way close to the knuckle. Fuck it hell. Too soon. Too soon. Well, before we move on, does anybody have anything else that they want to say about the film? Any moments or anything? Well, my great insight that I've written down is that Bond finds missing torpedoes. Torps or pedos, you decide. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before we get to the competition round, if you're new to the podcast and you're enjoying it, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you can, but especially Apple. It helps us keep making these and keeps us from turning our hands to spreading misinformation about subjects that actually matter. In Tomorrow Never Dies, unscrupulous and insane media baron Elliot Carver seeks to dominate the global news cycle by making and breaking the exclusives before anyone else can get wind of them, and by manufacturing and escalating a naval conflict between Britain and China that will secure his network exclusive broadcasting rights in China for a hundred years. In order to achieve these goals, he employs a cyber terrorist and a state-of-the-art stealth boat from which he and his men launch missiles at the opposing fleets. Ultimately, Carver is foiled by Wei Lin and James Bond, who revealed the position of the stealth boat before killing Carver with his own drill missile. A death MI6 will later cover up with a Robert Maxwell-style obituary. But how did the panel of peril rate Carver's diabolical scheme? Was it a good concept? And how well did he pull it off? And let's start with Gaz. Purely in terms of the film plot, I think it's excellent. Really, really different, as we previously noted. However, real-world terms... It's a bit dicey, isn't it? Fucking hell. It's a bit dicey. Being a third party trying to start a war between two nations to benefit your own media empire. I think that he would probably get found out, if not quickly, and certainly within his own lifetime, and he would be in big time doo-doo. I think, particularly in China, I think he'd be bazookaed to death, something (laughs) like that. No, I'm saying that's what they do in China. I'm just saying in this particular case, that's what they should do to someone like Carl. So yeah, I think it's very sketchy. I don't think that you'd get away with it at all, as he doesn't. All right. Cinemaster, do you agree? Yeah, I do pretty much on the whole with Gus. The alternative was doing it the way they normally do it in real life, which is they just work with the governments to frame frame certain countries and stuff like that. But obviously they couldn't do that because it's too close to the bone. So we had the film we had, which was great for a film. All right. Hopefully the alternative way to do it is the way you've done it, because otherwise we're going to run into some problems in the next section. Well, I think my uh, yeah, my little uh, ditty might uh, see us through. We'll see. A ditty. Interesting. All right. Ben. Wait, so Robert Maxwell's death wasn't an accident? Has Robert Maxwell's death just hit you? Yeah. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Take a moment. <laughs> I don't think I can go on. <laughs> don't go all fat and steal my pension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was a really clever, if not slightly convoluted plan. I mean, it must have been years and years in the making because he built that stealth boat, right? He didn't just buy it. That's right. He didn't just go to the shop and go, give me a stealth boat. He built it. Yeah, they kind of loosely tie that in 
towards the end of the film as well. Oh, that's where all that stealth gear went. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, what let's, jo- let's George Lucas out with one line. <laughs> get that what, get that shoehorn over here right now. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. As Gaz said, it, it did make for a, a fun film plot. It was quite clever, the, the idea of playing two sides off one another. I don't know why his end game was just media domination China. Was that because that was the last market that he didn't have? I don't know. But I'll give him a modest six florets of broccoli. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, I, I agree that I think his goal is a bit short-sighted. It seems a bit overkill to get that. Surely he could have much more power than that. I don't think his plot is that unbelievable. Governments and media do manipulate conflicts in real life they just do it in a different yeah. way they usually just say oh you know like i said before they usually frame frame a country yeah. a certain way don't they and then they say oh, this is what's happened and yeah. that's it you know there's people obviously terrible things happen and stuff but there's not usually a media mogul behind doing all the yeah the the actual the, all the legwork should we say just wildly typing on a remote keyboard <laughs> yeah. yeah what we're all saying and kind of all agreeing on is that we all think <laughs> there's a much more subtle way of doing things and i think you'll find that when you hear my plan uh, that's the approach that I've gone for. knife, and you'll you'll see that when we come to it. This is the part of the show where the panel of peril compete for the title of season four's most diabolical. Up for grabs is one point for each vote, which will go towards the series leaderboard. Elliot Carver manufactured a naval conflict between Britain and China in order to monopolise the global news business. But what would you have done differently, Cinemaster? Lots of dead celebrities are not really dead. I know it. You know it. Whether it's Elvis being abducted by aliens or the others, most are secretly biding their time for some reason. In 1997, one of those dead celebrities is Vincent Price. Uh He's been kept alive by the Colonel's secret blend of herbs and spices (laughs) and has been watching from his underground lair in Montenegro. Of course, it's lined with violet velvet stolen from the inside of coffins and he's going through jasmine joysticks like yesterday's news. Time to activate my terrible plan. Oh, yes. (laughs) Working in tandem with Elliot Carver, he uses his satellite network to broadcast to the Chinese public. Hello, citizens of China. It is I, Vincent Price. Yes, that's right. Vincent Price, the finest horror actor that has ever lived. And I'm back from the dead. (laughs) There's panic in China. What the (laughs) fuck is Vincent Price doing alive? And why is he scarier than ever? The Chinese ambassador has soiled himself at the return of the Master of Horror. With all the bother with the British and then depleted Old Navy, this week hasn't been a good one. Meanwhile, Carver on his secret boat, but it's not as we know it. Bond finds Carver in the South China Sea as Vincent Price returns to the world, but the boat isn't well hidden. Bond confronts Carver on board, but in the middle of canopies... No, 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 Mr. Bond, it's not a stealth boat, it's a wealth boat. 
my yacht for entertaining rich and powerful people. I've nothing to hide. Today it's China's media moguls. They're a tough bunch, says Carter. Bond is a bit confused, but before he has a chance to ask questions, a big wall of tellies lights up with the Chinese president on them, begging Carver to help them send Vincent Price back to his grave. Carver agrees, but his price is exclusive broadcasting rights in China in order to become the dominant global news power controlling all information and shit. The Chinese president agrees, but when all the moguls start grumbling, he just does a big angry face at them (laughs) and his face goes a bit red and they all shut up and look sad. (laughs) A day later, Carver shows a pre-recorded clip of Vincent Price smashing security guards to bits with his undead powers (laughs) until Carver himself appears and does that crocodile Dundee thing with his fingers. And suddenly, (laughs) Price goes rigid as a board and falls over, apparently dead once more, until the camera zooms in on his face and he does a sly little wink. (laughs) The end. What? (laughs) That's the end? So, basically, Vincent Price is not really dead. Okay. He's friends with Elliot Carver, and he's been waiting for a chance to uh, return to the world. And that's it, basically. And he helps Carver get his contract with the Chinese media. Got you. And that's it. It's a pretty simple plan. Bond just gives up then, does he? Anyone who eliminates zombie Vincent Price can't be a bad man. Yeah, he's so confused, he just has to go for a martini. Did you have the inspiration for this plan when you realised that Vincent Price has a similar surname to Jonathan Price? (laughs) Yeah, sort of, yeah. And then I watched (laughs) the Simpsons episode where um, Vincent Price isn't dead in that If you're calling about the eggs, (laughs) this is my grandson, Jody. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end, he's driving the bus. (laughs) Can't get it in gear. Jody, you're going to have to get out and push (laughs) or something like that. Do anyone remember when we started doing this and we established how it would work? And we were like, (laughs) no. (laughs) The means that the character actually has. That was 75 episodes ago. But I don't think any of us would dispute that Elliot Carver has the power to bring celebrities back from the dead. Elliot Carver doesn't have that power. It's the Colonel. Oh, the Colonel. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, the Colonel. I retract my previous statement. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Let's not forget it's 11 herbs and spices that are in that place. Yeah. That's double figures. Yeah, but the one he uses for KFC is slightly different to the ones he uses for keeping dead celebrities alive. More formaldehyde in the KFC one, isn't there? And that's why so many people have died in KFC. <laughs> but I've left mm-hmm. really good-looking corpses. Well preserved. Good-smelling corpses, too. Perfectly preserved, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, does anyone else Hang have on. any questions for the Cinemaster? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. I do. Are you aware that, until recently, China had a very strict limit on Western media, specifically films that were allowed to be shown in the country. And so what are the chances that the populace are even aware of the existence of Vincent Price? This is pre-internet as well, remember? Oh, I think that is good. Yeah. That's really good. Video nasties, just like they were over here. You get them on VHS. They might not necessarily be like available in your in your direct video or your blockbusters, but you can get them from people, you know. Xi Jinping down the road, he's got a copy of uh, the Witchfinder General, Vincent Price in it. <laughs> let's let's have a look at that. Oh, my God, it's terrifying. Oh. All right. Yeah. Bye, that. And now, let's hear from Gaz. Hey, 
Elliot Carver stands up before the assembled meeting of very important Chinese businessmen and women. Made in China. Made in China. Made in China. Everything that you think is British or perhaps an American product is Chinese. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, I leave to you to decide. But here is some food for thought. Converse trainers. Nike trainers and apparel. Ray-Ban sunglasses. Chanel luxury bags for women. Michael Kors timepieces. Chevrolet automobiles. And Gillette the best a man can get. All made in China. This being the year 1997, presumably, China has a one-child-per-family policy which impacts their economy in positive and negative ways. In the positive column, they are not a financial burden on the resources of the state. On the negative, the lack of potential labour creates a shortfall in the amount of hands who can make these outsourced goods. These are highly lucrative businesses and growth industries to boot. And so it is important to fill all of these jobs for the financial security of the Chinese nation. But what of your media, I wonder? That is where I would come in. I would offer the services of CMGN as state news broadcaster to you for only a nominal fee, providing a full staff of my own choosing whom I shall remunerate, removing the burden from China financially and in terms of manpower. You won't find a better deal than that, I can assure you, and General Chang will vouch for me. And that's it. He just has a big meeting and he makes a financial declaration and a labour declaration that will ease the burden on the nation. He makes them an offer they can't refuse. I'd say so. I wouldn't refuse that offer. I'd be like, yeah, sounds quite good. Is he saying this in Chinese or is he... Uh, yeah, but like <laughs> he's putting on a silly voice and doing kung fu moves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that will sell it to them because the Chinese government are notoriously known for being a good laugh. Yeah, yeah, they love a giggle. All right, <laughs> especially from foreigners at their expense. <laughs> Carver's promising them more manpower to make knockoff goods or whatever, or, or any goods at all. No. He's saying that they can keep their manpower to make the outsourced goods that drive their economy, and he will provide his own manpower to run the state media. So that means everybody who trained in China to be a journalist will instead be making like Adidas and stuff, which sounds Mm. to me genuinely plausible. (laughs) I think that does happen. Yeah, I think that's what's happening right now, isn't it? (laughs) All those people graduating uni and they're going to work on farms. (laughs) All right. Any more questions for Gaz? Then we'll have Ben. Carver hears a voice in his head. Oi, Elliot, you media slag! (laughs) What are you playing at with all that military missile nonsense? Stick to what you're good at, i.e. mediaing. He slaps himself on the forehead and calls cyber-terrorist Henry Gupta to his multimedia HQ office layer. Henry, dear, you are a cyber-terrorist, are you not? Asks Carver. Yes, sir, says Gupta. And you have an encryptor that can encrypt things? (laughs) Yes, sir. Well, what I want you to do is... The next day, China is in uproar. People throwing themselves from office blocks. Monks setting themselves on fire in protest. It's bloody. Panda, monium. Oh, 
Yeah. Oh, I can't bear it. (laughs) Why, I hear you ask? Because every state media outlet is leading with the following headline. Top officials admit whole government is a collective of Satan-worshipping D&D-playing heavy metal fans. (laughs) The story goes into detail about role-playing sessions that go on for up to six hours. Soundtracked by Ramstein, Korn, and Tool, sometimes simultaneously. (laughs) It posits that those who roll a natural 20 get to enact any law that tickles their fancy, and that the one-child policy was a result of one drunk civil servant rolling three natural 20s in a row. It also suggests that natural ones are responsible for all the missing dissidents across the country. It doesn't go into the devil worship beyond a few morsels about group masturbation with pig blood lubricant. (laughs) Even so, the shame levels are off the charts. Luckily for the distraught Chinese public, General Chang is on hand to stage a military coup, declaring that current leaders aren't fit for office, to which over a billion people reply with the Chinese equivalent of fair dues. (laughs) The public rejoices, Carver gets his media domination, and the world continues to spiral at practically the same pace as it would have anyway. So why did the papers print that headline? Because the encryptor. Yeah. (laughs) So what? Gupta's done is he's made a notification look like it's come from the Chinese government, right? Right, with his encryption straight to the state media. The state media have printed it, yeah, and published it and done it on all the news channels, yeah. And then it's you know it's caused uproar, bloody caused uproar. That bloody encryptor. Would Chinese state media print something like that about the Chinese government? Yeah, because it's encrypted to look like it's come from them. They do what they're told, Craig. They do what they're told. Would they? Possibly check that if, if it's a really, uh, like, what the fuck are they sending this, this shit for? Better give General Chang a bell. Make sure this is what we're supposed to publish. So General Chang's on board. He's like, yeah, that's accurate. Publish. <laughs> go, 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 go. Why would they check with him? He wants to run the country, doesn't he? I don't think they'd check with him. I think they'd check with the Chinese government equivalent of... Goebbels. The weedy guy from, uh, think of it. Chris Addison. Yeah, they'd, yeah. they'd get on the blower to Chinese Chris Addison and they'd be like, excuse me, Chinese Chris Addison. I've just had this. It looks <laughs> legit. I'm just going to tell you what it says, though. Just make sure. Then they'll get some more emails from Gupta encrypted from the government saying, publish it quickly. We're waiting. Also, we're uh, quite close to the start of your plan. Didn't you say missile? This really sounded like you said missile. He did. He said missile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was doing an accent style. Oh, I, I, see, say, I, see. I say both, I think. And I think you hear both in the film. I think, in fact, Bond says missile and missile. He would, wouldn't he? Brosnan with his crazy accent. When he started going <laughs> on uh, talk shows post sort of 2012 time, doing a really thick Irish accent Make that he never Irish. had before. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm so Irish now. Oh. Hello, it's me, Pierce Brosnan. How are you? How are you getting on? Top of the morning, yeah. When he asked me to play band there. <laughs> I said, put a bomb in me potato. Let's <laughs> Okay. Well, if there are no more questions for Ben, then I'll bring us home. The subtle approach. As a newsman and owner of a fabulous trophy wife, 
Elliot Carver knows what people want with their news, and that's massive mummy milkers. No more page three. You got it, sister. Now it's tits on every page. Sex sells, and nothing says sex like tits, tits, tits. Take the rough, hard news with the soft, supple embrace of a heaving bosom. Vicky, 18, from West Hertfordshire, thinks people should stick to their own kind and their own country. Haley, 22, from Devonshire, thinks democracy has had its day. She thinks strong leadership is required to make tough decisions. Louise, 19, from Buckinghamshire, <laughs> thinks the West is decadent and slave to its vices. Taxes on alcohol don't go far enough. On telly, saucy young newsreaders and weather girls giggle and play about like Babs Windsor, showing as much cleavage as possible. Carver no longer needs to make the news because nobody cares about facts. They only care about their beliefs and having news presented to them in a comforting way. And what could be more comforting than a buxom fun bag? And for the ladies, how about lady news? It's full of cocks and balls. <laughs> China is impressed with the anti-democratic stance of tomorrow's editorial and the way the papers keep the Western masses enthralled. With assurances that their local news will not feature any tits whatsoever, they agree to Grant Carver exclusive broadcasting rights for a hundred years. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gupta is attending to the burgeoning online market, launching the Titscape browser and cracking the social media market while Zuckerberg and Dorsey are still sucking on their mama's tits. <laughs> By the year 2000, everyone has a Facebook page and a Titter profile and get all of their news from bot accounts that also post plenty of pictures of tits and bums. <laughs> you sound like a character from Mitchell and Webb called uh, Raymond Terrific. <laughs> I thought it's more Ted Mall from Brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Very nice. So you've gone full Rupert Murdoch, essentially. Tits, tits, tits. You had a foolproof method there. I was already writing down my vote, but then, then something cropped up to really make me pause to think mm. you mentioned cocks and balls no one wants to see them on tv <laughs> not even women not even men i didn't say anything about tv cocks and balls are in lady news which is a magazine specially for ladies and i can prove to you that uh, okay. they do like cocks and balls because Playgirl exists and it had burt reynolds's cock and balls in it <laughs> oh yeah no, because you just mentioned it after the TV thing, I think. So that's why I, I, I perhaps wrongly put two and two together. Oh, uh, well, I see. Yeah, no, it was late. Lady News is a uh, a magazine. Mm -hmm. Okay, but still, no one wants to see him. I don't know. They're, they're ugly to everyone. I don't know. You used to get cocks and balls on Euro Trash, and it was always a bit of a delight. You never see a stiffy, do you? You didn't back then, but you can now. Is that a plus or a minus for you, Cinemaster? Uh, it's got to be a minus, yeah. I like, I like to see, I like to see when another man is having fun or not. I don't know. You know <laughs> I like to see yeah. it rising up yeah. in his pants like a fucking marquee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait till you see his fucking balls. <laughs> They've had a hard rod on um, the the voice spinoff, haven't they? Gen V. They had a a tiny little oh, unsized un un woman holding onto a big stiffy. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Oh, the guy in um, the boys that gets uh, is inside the guy's jacket. Yeah. But I don't think you see the whole penis in that. Do you? you just see the end of it. But in Gen V, you get to see the whole thing. The whole so they penis. must have relaxed the laws on tumescence. Bountiful penis. There's an episode of The Wire as well where the, the mayor's getting blown in his oh, office. Oh, yeah. And you see everything. Whoa, yeah. you see everything. Yeah. 
You've seen Wait. it all. <laughs> cable, I guess, is the thing. Cable and streaming, they can do whatever they want, can't they? They're not governed by the laws of regular broadcast TV. I didn't know that. Does anyone have any questions for me? No, I like, I like, yeah. I like that approach. <laughs> I knew you'd love it, Cinemaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's some truly diabolical schemes there, but who will get the votes? First, we had Cinemasters, Vincent Price returning from the grave, Gaz's All Things Are Made in China, Labour Saver Plan, Ben's Satanic Panic and the Military Coup. And finally, we had my subtle knife, Tit 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 approach. <laughs> well, let's begin the voting with Gaz. He looks ready. I'm ready, willing, and able to vote for Craig. It's one for me. Because I did chuckle. Uh, you get a bloody vote. Tits. <laughs> I'm going to put tits in all my plans from now on. All right. Well, Ben, who have you voted for, though? I've had two. I've never voted for bloody. Just for the energy of the delivery, I voted for Craig, and I've drawn some boobs. <laughs> and I've drawn some lovely tits. <laughs> Can I get a clean sweep, Cinemaster? I've gone for logic rather than laughs, and I've chosen gas. Oh. Well, can I get a vote for myself? Will somebody else get a vote? Or will the vote be completely split? I'll tell you. It's split. I've also voted for Gaz. Oh, hey. oh my lordy lady. Two abreast. <laughs> Vincent Price is spinning in his grave. I think if you'd have picked someone that was more well-known in China, you might have got away with it. Yeah, that one did cut it for me. Lon Chaney Jr. or something like that. Yeah. Genghis Khan. <laughs> Genghis Khan. He's more known in Mongolia rather than China. <laughs> they built a wall to keep him out. They know him in China, all right. <laughs> okay, now let's go over to Gaz with the scores to see what that's done to the season four leaderboard. Well, now... The scores stand at, in the lead, with 18 points, is your good self, Craig. It's me. In second place, a single point behind on 17, is my good self, Gaz. Third place, with 15 points, is reigning champion, the Cinemaster. And languishing with 10 points, is Ben. So you're saying in order to win this, I need to basically get three points an episode from now on. Challenge accepted. (laughs) It could happen. You haven't really done many songs yet. That's that's your forte. (laughs) I'm doing all songs. (laughs) All songs, all time. All singing, all dancing. All songs, all begging, all begging for points in every single (laughs) one. Please, please give me points. Uh, And then getting your daughters to make some cute voices at the end of it. I haven't done that for a while. That's a good idea. Please, please. (laughs) Okay. In a return to our regular schedule, Next week, Gaz will be hosting. So what worthy piece of cinema will we be presumptuously deigning to rewrite? Well, there's been a, a lot of talk of tits and some cocks and balls during the course of these plans, which is quite appropriate, as next week we will be covering the cinematic masterpiece that is Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson's bottom movie named Guest House Paradiso. Wow. Beautiful. I don't think I've seen it since... Did we watch it in the cinema in Llandino? Probably. 
Yes, no, in in real it was. I saw it. Was in it real? real? Yeah, because we went to see. I'm sure this, I watched it with you. Went to see. Maybe, yeah. We went to see Six Sense, but it was sold out, so we went to watch Guest House Paradiso <laughs> instead. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this episode. Like a totally explained celebrity death at sea. Thank you for listening. And if you think the news should be honest, make sure you subscribe, hit the bell and leave us a review on the very platform on which you're currently listening. You can follow us on social mediums at DiabolicalPod. Next week, we'll be competing to improve on the Diabolical plot of Guesthouse Paradiso. Until then, remember, don't grow up, 007. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. Lay down all thoughts, surrender to the void. It is shining. It is shining that you may see the meaning of within. It is being. It is being. Wonderful. What's the Cheryl Crow one? Tomorrow never dies, so don't you worry about that friend. <laughs> Darling, I'm cute. I'm, I'm in, in a puddle, puddle on, on the floor, floor waiting, waiting for, for you, you to, return. to return. Oh, what a thrill! Oh, what a thrill! Fascinations galore. Am I singing it right? I don't know the rest. Yeah. How you tease, how you leave me to burn. It's so deadly, deadly my, dear. my dear. The power, power of having of you near. You near. Until, Until that day. day. Until the world falls away. Until you say there's no more goodbyes. I see it in your eyes. Tomorrow, Tomorrow never, never dies. Day. Way better than Golden Eye. I've found his penis. <laughs> <laughs> Moonraker. He's the moon. The moon with the rakiest rake. The mooniest moon. Oh, not this again. <laughs> I've been reading this knock-knock joke book. Uh, it just doesn't make any fucking sense. Go on, then. I want to hear an example. I know you think you want to hear one, but you don't. I promise you. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> All right, well, don't say them, won't you? Knock-knock. Who's, Who's there? there? Diana. Diana, Diana who? who? Diana of Thirst. Can I please have a glass of water? Ah, <laughs> that's clever. <laughs> Because it sounds like something else, doesn't it? Most yeah, of them don't. That's the best joke I've ever heard. That's the only one out of that book that I've heard so far, and I've heard like 20. <laughs> That's the only one that vaguely comes close to the <laughs> format of a knock-knock joke. Let's do one more. Good luck. Knock-knock. Who's, Who's there? there? Lisbon. Lisbon, Lisbon who? who? Lisbon to see me. Now she's come to see you. <laughs> uh, LOL. Very good. R-O-F-L. It does say LOL just below it. <laughs> PMSL. Good stuff.
because every state media outlet. It's got my voice going. Woo, 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 cubes. <laughs> cubes. <laughs> <laughs>